Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by The Acting Company. Don't miss their current production of X or Betty Shabazz vs. The Nation. Playing January 14th through February 18th, 2018, Marcus Gardley's hit new play about Malcolm X returns off-Broadway for five weeks only at the Theater at St. Clement's on West 46th Street. Tickets at theactingcompany.org or call 866-811-4111. Use discount code BBS39, that's BBS39, for $39 tickets. The Bowery Boys, episode 250. Woo! The Empire State Building, the story of an icon. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. You've arrived at... Episode number 250. Tom, congratulations. Congratulations, Greg, and congratulations, listener, for arriving here (laughs) on the 250th floor. So we decided, of course, to take an elevator up to the, actually to the 102nd floor, or the 86th floor to the observation deck, and discuss the greatest icon in the New York City skyline, the Empire State Building. Of course... The Empire State Building has not always been the main symbol or the icon of New York because it was only constructed in 1930. So today we'll be discussing, you know, where did it come from and what was there before? How was it constructed and how has it changed since it opened in 1931? And I guess we should also tackle, Greg, um, why we think it's an icon in the first place of the city. The answer to that question is revealed in the history of the building because it was built at a very unique time in American history and it would come to represent more than just any old office building and it would certainly have more value than what the original builders intended. But I have another question for you, Greg. Why have we waited until the 250th show to finally tackle this building? Well, I mean, it has such prominence in the New York skyline and in the minds of people around the world that obviously we wanted to discuss it at a special moment for us. So after 200... So we've been holding off. So we've been holding off until now. So after 249 episodes discussing the world around the Empire State Building (laughs) and throughout the five boroughs, we are finally taking that elevator ride to the observation deck to discuss its history. 
Can, may I just ask you, though, if you think that perhaps we also haven't touched on this subject because there is something about the Empire State Building that seems, now I might be going out on a limb here or into dangerous waters, as a bit touristy. You know, this is a building that is obviously beloved around the world, possibly more beloved outside the city than even inside the city. I would say it's a American symbol that does belong to the world, but that some New Yorkers may not feel a camaraderie with, a close connection to. Well, But we, they've probably been to the top of it. Maybe. Even, even if they don't have that camaraderie. Well, so we are going to hopefully change your mind and give you a fabulous survey of its history and some little interesting tidbits about the building that you may not have known. And then at the end of the show, we're going to give you a couple tips, you old, crusty New Yorkers, of how <laughs> you can appreciate and enjoy the Empire State Building today. So start spreading the news. We're leaving today to tell the story of the Empire State Building. All right, Greg. Well, here we are, and... Episode 250, we're going old school. I want you to situate us. Possibly the easiest situate ever <laughs> in terms of ge geographically situating us. I think uh, a lot of people can visualize it right now in their head. The Empire State Building is located on Fifth Avenue between 33rd and 34th Street. For many decades, it was New York City's tallest building. Today, it is the third tallest after... One World Trade Center, and that condo at 432 Park Avenue between 56 and 57. You know that oh, one right. that looks yes. like an ugly domino? That building. Yes, it blocked your office view. Yeah, I have, I'm partially <laughs> mentally scarred because of that building because I used to work across from it. Anyway, the Empire State Building is 1,454 feet from the ground floor to the very tip of its antenna. 1,454. Yes. There are a lot of numbers that are going to be flung around in this show. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and here's some more. Uh, it has 102 floors. However, technically, it has 103 because there's a tiny balcony up on the spire that is sometimes called the 103rd floor. Oh. But the top that most people can get to is the 102nd floor observatory. Yes. Now, 85 of those floors are commercial and office space. Almost 2.2 million square feet mm. of it, in fact. Theoretically accommodating 20,000 tenants and 15,000 additional visitors. Despite being minimized by the Trade Center and that building on Park Avenue, it remains one of America's most popular icons and a great achievement of engineering. In 2007, the American Institute of Architects declared the Empire State Building the number one favorite piece of architecture in the United States. That's somehow not surprising. What was second place? The White House. So oh. it's even more popular than the White House. And that was in 2007. The Chrysler Building, by the way, is number nine on that list. And we can debate later whether or not, you know, one prefers the Chrysler Building to the Empire State because that's a whole conversation. Yeah. In this show, we hope to get to the bottom of why the Empire State Building is so iconic. So to do that, we need to rewind the clock to the birth of the Empire State Building and to the occupant of the land before its existence. 
Are you taking us all the way back? Not all the way back. I'm actually going to take us back to 1929. So immediately before it was built. Right. What you would have found on this plot that I just described would have once been New York's most regal hotel, the Waldorf Astoria. Now, in a way, this show is almost a third part of our rise and fall of Fifth Avenue mansions because we spoke in depth about the Waldorf Astoria in that show. You know, these were two adjoining hotels that were built on the footprints of two great mansions. They were constructed in the mid-19th century, owned by William Backhouse Astor and John Jacob Astor. Several decades after, after warring social factions, this led to the Waldorf Hotel in 1893 and the Astoria Hotel in 1897. Two hotels that would be linked to create the Waldorf Astoria right. Hotel. And the center of wealth and high class in the United States. However, in the 20th century, the foundations of class and changing fortunes of the city shifted around the hotel. But by 1928, it seemed extremely obvious that its days were numbered. And that's because by this time, things had moved. The social center of the city had moved uptown. Midtown by this time was a busy retail and entertainment district. It was especially outdated in light of Midtown's newest obsession, which was the skyscraper. New York was in the throes of the skyscraper boom since the start of the 20th century. And so by this time, this was more than three decades of skyscrapers throughout New York City. Although it really did heat up in the mid-1920s. As there was finally an American style of architecture, we were shaking off that heavy extraneous baggage of the Beaux-Arts movement and developing a new style called Art Deco, which worked with steel frameworks, mm-hmm. this, you know, this new, t- new technological marvel and this way of building, which would create buildings that had an almost futuristic quality and sort of reflected kind of the American optimism of its day. With the city growing richer, there would be more companies here, there would be more people here, and we would need more office buildings right. to accommodate all these successful industries that are, that are developing and thriving in the start of the 20th century. And you would also need apartment towers to house all of these nouveau riches, who then, of course, ran all these industries in all these office towers. So... There was no room for the Waldorf Astoria. Actually, there was a lot of room free in the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> yes, because a lot the, of vacancy. That's true. So on December 21st, 1928, the New York Times declared, quote, The Waldorf Astoria has been sold. On the site of this internationally known hotel, a center of American social, political, and financial activities for two generations, will rise a 50-story office building next summer. Wait, hold on a second. 50-story? A 50-story... No. That's a little bit of a letdown, and obviously... (laughs) That didn't happen. That did not happen. But they were already, you know, thinking about, like, what this space could be. There was a huge illustration in the New York Times of this 50-story office tower, which, of course, didn't get constructed because things were happening so fast in the city. By 1928, there were so many brand new buildings that were so desirable that businesses rushed from these older office buildings all over the city to move into buildings with modern technology and the ones that had cachet and this new art deco style. They wanted to be associated with these buildings. So by the end of the 1920s, 
skyscrapers that were just a couple decades old were already outdated themselves. Right, right. So even 50 stories didn't seem to be enough. But behind this frenzy of this office tower mania, even by 1928, the supply was actually meeting and soon outnumbering demand. Like by 1928, there were already hundreds of office buildings in New York. And that's 1928, still during boom time. Yeah. So the best way to get people to your office building, the best way to make it appealing was, of course, to get headlines. And if you got headlines, you could charge healthy rents. The best way to get those headlines is to simply build big. So 50 floors wasn't going to cut it in 1928. The author, John Taranak, said that in the first nine months of 1929, there were plans for 709 new buildings at a total cost of $472 million. Okay, so this was an absolute frenzy. So it's 1928, and it sounds like the real estate market, the commercial real estate market in New York City is very optimistic. (laughs) Too too optimistic, I think. But market pressures were only pushing people to build higher. Yeah, I mean, and it seemed like there would be no end to this. Now, let me take you to the date August 29th, 1929. Wait, August 29th of 1929? Right. Okay. There are some dark clouds on the horizon here. Sure, sure, sure. But they're, they're still very far away. Okay. There's an interesting press conference that took place at the Hotel Biltmore near Grand Central. Uh, the press was called in to the hotel suite of former New York Governor Al Smith. Now, I'm sure he was wearing like a suit, but I mean, they were in his suite. So I, I'm imagining he was in a robe or something, but probably that's not how Randy it was. Snifter. Yeah, probably not how it was. So this conference, this press conference was 1929. The previous year, Al Smith had actually dominated the headlines. In addition to being the governor of New York, he was also a candidate for the president of the United States representing the Democratic Party. He was defeated in the landslide by Herbert Hoover. This was a historic election. He was to have been the first Catholic ever elected, and he was defeated by a businessman. But even though Al Smith was very popular, history was not made at that election. No. no, He was soundly uh, defeated. Well, I mean, just to draw the parallel a little bit to modern times here, Mm -hmm. imagine if Hillary Clinton had a press conference and then said, I'm going to make the tallest building in the world. Okay? (laughs) Uh, Just imagine that. So, Because that is what Al Smith did after this election. Um, he had promised reporters that he would have a press conference to announce his future business plans. And I'm, I'm totally with you on that parallel, with one obvious exception, Greg, that Al Smith actually lost the popular vote. So here at the press conference in the Biltmore, he announced plans for a brand new office tower that would be placed on the Waldorf Astoria property. So this was going to be a venture between Al Smith and John J. Raskob, who was a supporter of Smith and was even the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. So they obviously knew each other. Yes, good friends. Uh, Raskob was an executive at DuPont and General Motors. Back in the 1920s, he had even innovated the idea of extending credit to auto dealerships. And this would eventually become the GMAC or the Ally at Financial. If you've ever tried to buy a car, you know what those two companies are. Anyway, so if you think of Raskob as a GM association, think of the Empire State Building as being fueled, if you will, 
by another motor company because what building is being constructed right up the street? Why, I think you're talking about the Chrysler building. (laughs) Yes. So so part of this competition between the two buildings actually goes back to the motor business itself. Yeah, I mean, the Empire State Building doesn't have the frills of the Chrysler building, but it is... It is, in fact, an automobile-fueled adventure, if you will. The Chrysler, by the way, was one of two major skyscrapers that was angling to become the tallest building in New York City and the world. And by this time, again, we're in 1929. Mm-hmm. And what was the tallest building in 1929 at this at this point? The Woolworth Building. They're all in New York, the tallest buildings in the world. So they're trying to beat the Woolworth Building. So now you have the Chrysler Building okay. in a fierce race with another structure at 40 Wall Street. 40 Wall Street actually did complete first in April of 1930, but it was immediately superseded by a surprise spire that was placed on top of the Chrysler building as a a dirty little trick by architect William Van Allen. Okay, and that building was, just to be clear, built for Walter Chrysler, the car mogul. So you've got the Woolworth and the Chrysler buildings that are obviously capitalizing on these commercial names, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of funny that Raskob didn't go for something that would help out, I don't know, General Motors or DuPont or one of the other companies that's associated with this new Empire State Building. Right. Yes, and the reason has to do with Al Smith. He was the celebrity at the front of this venture. He was the man who was front and center of the project. It was was him and Raskob who were like the driving forces. So it only made sense then... Driving forces? <laughs> that was an I thought the pun had run out of gas. <laughs> unplanned puns. Um, it only made sense to then name the building after the business that Al Smith was famous for running. And of course, he was the New York governor, that business being the state of New York, aka the Empire State. Thus, In a way, it is kind of a business-branded building. It's just that Smith was the governor. All right, you've kind of convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) On October 2nd, 1929, from atop the very Waldorf Astoria itself, and it was was actually Smith and Raskob and all the people involved with this brand new venture were Mm -hmm. there to kick off the demolition of the Classic Hotel. From the New York Times, quote, This historic building, known all over the world, must come down in the northward march of progress, Smith said. His evident pleasure at the start of the work on the building enterprise by the company he heads was mixed with regret at the passing of the landmark, which held many pleasant memories for him, he admitted. And even though the Waldorf Astoria would be moving uptown, it's not like it went out of business. Right. It would go somewhere else. Right. It still seems kind of regrettable that they would have to demolish this other landmark building. Right. To get rid of one and replace it with another great landmark. You know? And, and he, they seem kind of wistful about it because yes, they had they spent do. so many fun days walking along Peacock Alley. Well, they will all experience a few more troubling emotions, I must say. Also, perhaps a little bit of regret. For just a few weeks later would come the stock market crash, which would send the American financial system into a tailspin. And we'll speak more of its effects a little bit later in the show. But you would think that they would halt progress on this. You know, I mean, they hadn't like they hadn't really started building it by the time this happened. 
and indeed other projects around town would get stopped in their tracks. Sure, understandable. Because of the stock market crash of October of 29. So why wasn't the Empire State Building project doomed? Roscob did have some investors pull out, and so the project was essentially supported by a loan of $27.5 million from the MetLife Insurance Company. So they actually did have money, and Raskob actually didn't lose that much money in the stock market crash, nor did Al Smith. So they felt like they had enough resources to go forward, interestingly enough. By the way, that building 40 Wall Street that was the tallest building in the world for like a minute, Mm -hmm. don't feel bad for its architects. Richard Shreve and William Lamb, for they would be the ones hired to work on the Empire State Building. Right. William Lamb is a Brooklyn was a Brooklyn boy. He studied in, in Paris at the École de Beaux-Arts and then came back to New York to work at Carrere and Hastings in 1911. Of course, one of the city's great architectural firms. Uh, fa- uh, most famous for the main branch of the New York Public Library. And while working there, he met R.H. Shreve, and they formed their own partnership in 1920 that was initially part of Career and Hastings. By 1929, their company would be called Shreve, Lamb, and Harmon. So Raskob, your man, allegedly asked Lamb when hiring him, standing a pencil upright, Bill, how high can you make it so it won't fall down? And Greg, there's a lot of pencil talk, legendary pencil talk, (laughs) Uh you know, in the story of the Empire State Building, that it was modeled after a children's sort of thick pencil, you know, that it it looked like a pencil, that they started designing it like a pencil from the top going down. And if a pencil, turn it over, you know, so the eraser is on the bottom and the the top, like it's just been sharpened at the top. I'm getting a a sharper sense of, of what this looks like. Even though Shreve was his number two, Lamb was the chief architect here, uh, and he had to design it with proper setbacks in order to conform with the new zoning standards that the city had set in 1916. We actually talk about the Empire State Building and its setbacks in a show we did a few years ago called How High Can It Go? about the particular zoning laws. Yes. In this law in 1916, it set the maximum size of the tower not the base of the building, but the tower, as a percentage of the lot size. And if you pulled back to that percentage of the lot size, you could then build as high as you wanted. This required uh, that the developers of the Empire State Building buy up adjacent properties and enlarge their site so that they could maximize the square footage of the tower, of each floor. There was a problem, actually, over at the Chrysler building. They didn't have as much access to the adjacent buildings. And so their tower is actually smaller in terms of square foot per floor. And, you know, when you have elevators and things like that in other public spaces, that shrinks down the commercial rentable office space. Yeah, they become unusable at that point. Right. And, And it just becomes less profitable. So the Empire State Building actually has much more rentable square feet of office space than the Chrysler building. And Lamb designed the building, as you mentioned, in an Art Deco style, although I would say it's kind of a subdued Art Deco style, especially when compared to the Chrysler building. Yeah, and so many other great Art Deco buildings are in New York City that have a flashier, have more bling to them. More trappings. Yeah. Yeah, there are some, obviously, you know, around the windows on the Empire State Building and the lobby, but much more restrained than other buildings. Sophisticated. Austere. So here we are in October, and Smith and the gang have commenced with demolition on October 2nd. What happened next? 
Well, that in itself was an enormous undertaking because the old hotel, you know, was was a sturdy old gal. And they had to figure out what to do with all of those materials. They couldn't Mm -hmm. just burn it all or sell it off. And rather tragically, I think, they carted away most of it, 16,000 truckloads of it, off to Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and dumped it in the Atlantic Ocean. We're talking about, like, crazy architectural features, you know, sculpture, trappings, Greg. Well, so if you're a scuba diver in New Jersey, I've got a weekend excursion for you. (laughs) Amazingly, when they got to the bottom of the site, the bottom of the building, you know, they're digging out and clearing it away. uh, They came across a locked wine cellar, popped it open, and it was actually filled with fine wines and champagnes, which... The partners in the business happily divided up amongst themselves. Well, it was prohibition after all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was the secret stash. And by the way, the next month in November of 29, they announced an update to their plans because, as you mentioned, the Chrysler building had decided to go taller. Mm -hmm. They had updated their plans in this crazy race. So the Empire State Building had to update their plans, and they decided to add a 16-story tower, a crown, to the top of the Empire State Building that would add another 200 feet uh, to the top of the building. And then on top of that, put a a mooring mast that would add another 200 feet. Did you say they added, just slapped on 20 floors of offices here just to their plans? (laughs) Just penciled them in? No, because as we discussed in last year's show on the Hindenburg uh, flying over New York, the tower was actually intended to be a landing tower for dirigibles or for passenger blimps that were all the rage, at least theoretically, at the end of the 1920s. The, and then the, the mooring mast on top of that would be the hookup for the blimp. So actually the, the 16th floor tower on top of the 86th floor observation deck, the tower on top of it would just be kind of like a staircase. There wouldn't be offices in there. Well, I mean, when you think about this as being the latest technology and that these buildings had to, like, you know, be updated. So, I mean, the, the, we'd think of the Zeppelin as being old-fashioned. But, in fact, they were trying to, like, be forward-thinking and futuristic. Very futuristic. I mean, can you imagine coming across the Atlantic in one of these giant blimps and then hooking up to that little antenna mast at the very top, taking a staircase, right, down to the top of that tower, 1,450 feet in the air, you know, don't look down. <laughs> yeah, don't be texting as you're leaving the Zeppelin or something. <laughs> hey, just arrived. Meet me downstairs. <laughs> You'd get down faster than you expected. No, but like climbing down that into the tower and then into a customs area that would be set up on the 86th floor. It wasn't obviously practical, but this was this was what was being discussed at the times. And it's the same the same week, really, as the stock market crash. So people were obviously eager to talk about anything else. And actually, that's true of the whole building. You know, the Empire State Building is famous for boosting the city's morale during the Depression. And as things would get worse in 1931, 
people in the city could find some kind of hope and inspiration by watching this giant building under construction. It was encouraging to see something new rise from the city at this very dire period. And something that would employ about three and a half thousand workers to make that building rise. So when did construction actually begin here? Well, in January of 1930, crews finally got to work on the building's foundation. And for that, they would drill all the way down to reach Manhattan's granite bedrock. And into that bedrock, they would sink more than 200 foundational columns. The first steel column was set on April 7th, 1930. And after that, girder by girder, the actual construction would begin and the Empire State's steel skeleton would begin to rise, like almost like a puzzle, you know? There would be 50,000 thousand steel beams that would be bolted into place around those columns to form the building's core structure. That is so much steel. 50,000 steel (laughs) beams uh, that were manufactured in Pittsburgh and then sent up by train to New Jersey, barged over to New York, and there were special routes to get it to the construction site. But as you can imagine, these trucks couldn't just double park, you know, in the middle of Fifth Avenue (laughs) while they waited for these beams to be unloaded. They had to have a whole system in place. And all of this had been meticulously planned by the general contractors, a company called Starrett Brothers and Eakin, who would plan out every little detail right down to like what would be going up and down in the elevators at any given day. They had like schedules for the elevators. Everything was meticulously timed. They also constructed a ramp into the construction site between 33rd and 34th Street so that these trucks could pull in and get out of the street and either go down into a basement level or up one floor. Uh, Meanwhile, the contractors themselves had little offices. They were like bungalows that were built a couple levels off the street so that Al Smith, Raskob, and others could report to the construction site every day and they had their offices there. But but these beams would, would arrive on the site and they'd be hoisted up into place like a puzzle and there the, the riveters who were working in small teams would heat up these rivets and then throw them through the air, a practice that is not done anymore. Um, And there somebody would catch it with a glove and pound it into the steel, connecting the beams like, you know, like a ballet in the air. What's wonderful about how you've just described this is I can picture it because these were well-photographed events. Well-photographed for a reason, Greg, as you mentioned, Al Smith knew a thing or two about publicity. Mm -hmm. People wanted to have their offices in the most famous building in the world, right? That would give these businesses an extra amount of cachet to be able to write the Empire State Building on, you know, their return address. Mm -hmm. And Al Smith knew that in order to reach that kind of recognition and that sort of fame, he had to work the press. So he had the press covering this newsreel photographers, radio, and especially in the newspapers, covering the construction from the first day until it was completed and opened up the next year. Making it one of the most anticipated structures being built in the United States at the time. And many, many people were also appreciating the photographs that were being taken by Lewis Hine, who was a photographer hired by the company to document the progress of the construction. And only one of the most famous photographers of the 20th century. 
because he was going all the way up. You know, he was working up in the very top girders, photographing these men as they were as they were throwing the rivets. So who were these men who actually constructed the building? Well, there are about 3,500 of them uh, who <laughs> reported to work every day. All kinds of different jobs. Obviously, there were, uh, in addition to the riveters, there were also carpenters, plumbers, painters, bricklayers, electricians, you name it. They worked long days. Uh, they were given a half hour off for lunch. But of course, the Starred Company had thought of everything, including how to maximize that 30-minute lunch break. You know, it would take too long to tie up the elevators to have the workers go back down to Fifth Avenue to go look for lunch someplace. So they set up canteens. They set up restaurants every 20 floors or so. And for about 40 cents, you could get a full lunch, including two sandwiches. What you're saying is they didn't run down to the street to get a wrap, but chopped... (laughs) <laughs> they did not go to Chopped. They did not get a chicken Caesar wrap. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they they were getting their 40-cent lunch uh, right there in the tower under construction. Wow, that's interesting. Perhaps the most famous of the workers were members of the Mohawk tribe uh, who fearlessly worked on and walked across beams at the very top of the building working out in the open without any of the safety harnesses that one would expect today was actually a rite of passage for the members of the tribe who came down to the city from upstate New York and parts of Canada. And they didn't just work on the Empire State Building. They they helped construct in these very high, dangerous zones of many other skyscrapers, including the Chrysler Building, but also modern buildings like the World Trade Center, Time Warner Center, and many others. A large number of these men and their families even lived in the Borum Hill neighborhood of Brooklyn. Now, I'd heard that they were able to construct this at an amazing pace. Uh, When was it actually completed? When was the building done? Indeed, it went up really quickly. There's some debate about exactly how fast. Was it one floor per day or four floors per week? Mm -hmm. But still, those are incredible. That's an incredible speed. On September 19th, 1930, the skeleton of the building was complete. The building was topped out. The the steel framework was completed at the very top, up to the 86th floor observatory. And the mooring mast then was completed in late November. Al Smith shot the final rivet into the building himself on April 11th, 1931. Allegedly, a rivet made of solid gold. (laughs) Al just had some, I guess, lying around his suite at the Hotel Biltmore, As one does in the depths of the Depression. (laughs) The Empire State Building was ready to open by the end of April 1931. And in the publicity surrounding the opening and surrounding the construction, really, there are all kinds of records that had been set and smashed. There were all kinds of statistics that were cited. Let me just... May I just share a few? Share away. There were 57,000 tons of steel used. I mean, these are the kinds of numbers that are sort of hard to visualize, (laughs) but just work with me here. Sure. 57,000 tons of steel. Okay. 450 tons of aluminum were used for the window trims and the spandrels, you know, Mm -hmm. the decorative flourishes. There were 200,000 cubic feet used of Indiana limestone for the facade. 10 million bricks, Greg, used inside the Empire State Building, 6,400 windows, 
and 66 elevators, which sped at 1,200 feet per minute. Because, you know, that was one of the primary concerns was how were you going to get all these people efficiently up and down the building and quickly? Well, all these statistics, they're all unimaginable as individual components, but they all come together to make the Empire State Building. A building which cost $52 million to construct in the end, which was under budget and ahead of schedule. On May 1st, 1931, Al Smith hosted a VIP event that was attended by hundreds of invited guests, although thousands of New Yorkers actually showed up trying to get into the building because they were so excited. Mm -hmm. They were like rock stars or something. Well, I guess the building is a rock star. Yeah, I mean, it is a celebrity. Sometimes, I mean, in some of the ways we describe it, it's almost like it's a gigantic famous person. Yes, yeah. And uh, so obviously thousands of people showed up and pushed their way up through police lines to actually try to get in on opening day. Um, First, Al Smith's grandchildren down in the lobby cut the ribbon downstairs uh, out to Fifth Avenue. Grandchildren who were, you know, chosen to cut the ribbon because they represented the future of the building and how this building would belong to future generations. And then um, they all went up to the 86th floor where there was a ceremony Uh, presided over by Governor Franklin Roosevelt, Mayor Jimmy Walker, and many others. The ceremony also included a moment where President Herbert Hoover in the White House flipped a switch that turned on the lights on the Empire State Building. The man who had actually defeated Al Smith now turned on the lights to Al Smith's building. Oh, the irony. From the next day's New York Times, quote, Immediately after President Hoover switched on the lights, Mr. Smith invited the guests of Empire State, Inc. to go with him to the 86th floor. There, the guests viewed Manhattan Island and the metropolitan area from a new pinnacle. Few failed to exclaim at the smallness of man and his handiwork, as seen from this great distance. They saw men and motor cars creeping like insects through the street. They saw elevated trains that looked like toys. The next morning at 9 a.m., the building opened its observation deck to the public for the first time. But all of this pomp and ceremony couldn't cover the fact that the country had sunk into a deep depression, one that it wouldn't climb out of for years. We'll get to that story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On March 2nd, 1933, 6,000 people crammed themselves into Radio City Music Hall to see the Empire State Building officially become an icon. It was two years old when audiences saw that gigantic anthropoid primate apish creature by the name of King Kong carry Fay Ray to the top of New York's newest tallest building. We see this as a classic film with, you know, classic icons in a film, but it was a brand new building. It would be as if Hollywood made a new King Kong where King Kong walked the High Line and cr- and climbed <laughs> climbed the Hudson Yards buildings, right? right? So it, it was it had that it kind was of newness. It, yes. There was just something immediately special about the Empire State Building. The Great Depression put a kibosh on most significant building projects in the city. So the Empire State Building was virtually the last thing to be built in the 1930s. Virtually, but of course, Rockefeller Center was also constructed during the Great Depression. Yes, and the RCA Building would join the Empire State Building on the New York skyline. But with the exception of that massive project, the skyline was essentially frozen. The Empire State Building was the tallest building in the world, but this wasn't like an official designation. You know, if it wasn't for the Great Depression, people would have continued to build other skyscrapers and they would have been taller. So it was the last tallest building built for a long time. Yeah, there was there was no money to build any others. So thus, the Empire State Building, this massive building 
situated on Fifth Avenue and 34th Street, became a focal point of the New York City skyline and was so for so long that when serious construction did return to the city and starting in the late 1940s and into the 50s, the Empire State Building had already become a major icon. So there was an almost unspoken agreement that you were never supposed to build as tall as the Empire State Building, well, at least until the 1960s. But there also wasn't really a need for these giant office towers anyway, was there? Because the market was already saturated and and it was the Depression. (laughs) Yeah, there was already a glut of office spaces. And then with the Depression, there were fewer thriving businesses and people to be in those office buildings. That spelled some trouble for the Empire State Building when it first opened. In those early years, it was impossible to fill those 86 floors. In the first year, it only reached 23% occupancy. Dozens. Imagine all those vacant floors. Going, you know, going into a building that was mostly empty. Imagine seeing it at night. It must have been kind of eerie to see like a black silhouette of an empty skyscraper. Well, they had a little trick that they that they often use, which was they just turned on the lights for the whole building, so it looked like it was like buzzing with activity. Oh. But in fact, by the mid nineteen thirties, they had already garnered an unfortunate nickname: the Empty State Building. And most of the people who actually were in the building that had actually rented space were somehow related to the building. DuPont was there. And DuPont was Raskob's company. Yes. U.S. Steel, which had some investment They had something to do. (laughs) Were there. Um, Al Smith's famed political advisor, Belle Moskowitz. She had moved in. She had offices. Al Smith's dentist even moved into the building, John J. Jaffin. Well, he didn't have a hard time filling it. <laughs> um, Mr. Jaffin was there for many, many years. He was famed for being the dentist of the stars, adding a little glamorous enamel to the building. Oh. No surprise, uh, some garment makers moved into the building uh, because, you know, that was the garment district was just a little south of there. The offices of the World's Fair of 1939 moved into the Empire State Building. In the 1940s, a little company named Timely Comics would also move into the building. They would become Marvel Comics. But whatever happened to the mooring mast? Well, no surprise, that was never really a a usable, realistic project. And with the crash of the Hindenburg, the whole industry kind of went away. And of course, the rise of commercial airlines, of course, would take that over. That mooring mast would eventually become, would be used for an antenna which would be attached to it. And as a result of this, by the way, another tenant that would move in starting in the 40s and 50s would be radio and eventually TV studios. Because it would be quite glamorous to say that you're, you know, being broadcast from the, you know, 84th floor of the Empire State Building. Well, and this was also great new revenue for them. Even if the studios weren't in the building, they could use the antenna. Oh, yeah. This was the highest point in the city. It was an, it was natural that broadcast companies would be attracted to this particular spot. So they had problems at first getting tenants into the building, but they did not have problems getting tourists to the Empire State Building. You know, it was such a large building, and it, was, it held the distinction as tallest building for so long... It was this spectacle that was in the middle of the city 
that it appealed to tourists. And of course, the owners of the building threw all of their marketing weight into attracting tourists into the building, in particular to those observation decks, the 86th floor observation deck, and of course the 102nd floor, which was supposed to be for Zeppelin passengers for disembarking (laughs) well it must have been thrilling i mean there's a reason that people were storming the police barricades to get in on opening day they had never ever been so high in their lives we are so used to seeing cities from overhead because we fly in airplanes and there's just photography drones drones but back then most people had never been at that elevation ever in their life, and especially in New York. And so thus, there on the 86th floor, this became a place where many New Yorkers fell in love with New York City for the very first time, you know, because most people had not flown in airplanes. This was the first time they ever saw anything from that height. And of course, the Empire State Building profited greatly off of this in advertisements, uh, you know, like espousing just how beautiful the city looked. One advertisement actually said, quote, enjoy the pleasure of sipping a cocktail in an airplane right at the top of this building without leaving terra firma. So they were even drawing comparisons to the glamour of international flight. At a fraction of the cost. (laughs) In fact, just a dollar. It was a dollar to get to the top of the Empire State Building. And millions of people happily forked over that dollar. (laughs) Happily. From day one, the image of the Empire State Building was marketed as the symbol of the city. The Empire State Building actually freezes the city, how it looked in a way in, in the 1930s, because there was no significant construction in that decade. But what's more interesting is that just happens to be a work of Art Deco. And Art Deco, as a building style, was only around for a couple decades. Had all of this occurred a few decades before, it, it wouldn't have been that tall, obviously. It would have been in Beaux-Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, had it happened a few years afterwards, it would have been in kind of modernist, possibly even a brutalist style. Okay. And so part of the appeal and romance of this particular building is how in later decades, people began idealizing the Art Deco style. And here, right in the middle was a grand example of that particular style of architecture. And that style and the the romance and glamour of the building would only become heightened, I suppose, once they started illuminating the building with lights. I mean, that's really part of the glamour of the Empire State Building is really how it's lit. But it wasn't until 1956 that they actually had regular lighting in the form of four revolving beacons, and they called them the Freedom Lights that were made in 1956. Wait, so those Freedom Lights were like lights directed at the tower? Right, uh uh-huh. And those didn't come until the 50s? Right. No, I mean, the building was, and I'll talk about this in a second, the building was well lit from the inside. Right. Right. So, but it wasn't like this sort of like showy, extravagant light. Those wouldn't come into the 1950s. Well, there was almost one major new lighting feature that many wanted on top of the Empire State Building, and that was a bottle of Coca-Cola. What? <laughs> so you know how the Empire like State... attached to the mooring mass? <laughs> yeah, well, you know how the Empire State Building was having some problems with uh-huh. money? So Douglas Lee, the famous lighter of Times Square and an ad executive extraordinaire was fronting for Coca-Cola, and they were 
almost successful in convincing the owners of the building to place a lit bottle, a gigantic bottle of Coca-Cola on the top of the building as part of this grand wartime advertising extravaganza on the part of Coca-Cola. I mean, could you imagine that? But was it animated? The bottle would have been at the top of the building. It would have changed color based on the weather. So, I mean, this sign of... kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, and also kind of previews how the lighting is today on the Empire State Building. But I guess, fortunately, that fell flat. And I have to assume that that had something to do with World War II. Oh, sure. I mean, that certainly played a big part of this, of course. This now being the tallest building in the city, it had safety concerns. The building beefed up security measures during the war. It installed watchers on the observation deck to look out over the city, to look out over the ocean in case of possible air attacks. And it even went dim. All the lights were turned off above the 15th floor, as did the lights of all the buildings in all the city during the war years. One morning on a foggy day, June 28th, 1945, a B-25 bomber, an American plane, on its way to Newark Airport, got lost, swerved off course, meandered over the city before crashing into the north side of the Empire State Building between the 78th and the 80th floor. This is a tragedy that most people don't know anything about, and it is incredibly dramatic that it would happen here at the end of the war. In a city that was already on high alert, what time of day did this happen, did you say? It was a Saturday and it was in the morning. And so there were few businesses open in, thankfully, in the building, but there were some people in the building. And unfortunately, 14 people died in this accident, including 11 people in the building. Most of them, eight of them, employees at the Catholic War Relief Office, which had been located on the 79th floor. The airplane hit the Empire State Building with such force that one of the engines of the plane went all the way through the building, went out all the other side, and smashed and destroyed the penthouse apartment of sculptor Henry Herring at 10 West 33rd Street. That is so scary. There was an elevator operator who was working that day. Her name was Betty Lou Oliver. She was on the 80th floor when the plane crashed and she was injured in this disaster. When rescue workers arrived, they put her on a stretcher and they put her back in an elevator to go back down to the ground floor so she could go to a hospital. What they didn't realize is that the airplane crash had weakened the cables of the elevator. So when they closed the door, Betty Lou Oliver plummeted 75 floors and she survived she fell over 1,000 feet. What a nightmare. And I'm assuming that that was really covered in the press. Yeah, it was like a, a glimmer of good news. And she's in all these photos of her and her crutches with her boy, her sailor boyfriend and everything. I mean, a remarkable woman. She lived to be a very old lady. She died in 1999. What a life. 
So, Greg, you and I have been, like, banging our heads around the transactional history <laughs> of the Empire State Building, and it is kind of confusing. It, it's less glamorous and it's more confusing. But essentially... <laughs> essentially, in the 60s, in 1961, Lawrence Ween, his son-in-law, Peter Malkin, and Harry Helmsley bought the building itself and the leases to run the building for $65 million. That amount, when combined with the price paid for the land under the building, mm-hmm. uh, $17 million, would go down as the largest transaction, the largest real estate transaction in history. Ever in history. Of course, today it would be a drop in the bucket. But back then... <laughs> It'd be a penthouse <laughs> yes. at that new annoying skyscraper. Yes. But back then, it was the greatest deal ever made. And then meanwhile, this group, Lawrence Ween and, and, and Helmsley, then sold the building itself to Prudential Insurance for $29 million and set up an arrangement where Prudential would lease to Helmsley and Ween for 114 years at like $2 million a year the right to run the building. So so my head's going to explode. Long story short, the tenor of the story is changing. The Empire State Building will now be considered a commodity. Well, hold on, it only gets stranger because Prudential wanted, by the 1990s, to get out of this arrangement. So they put the building up for sale, thinking that Ween and Malkin and Helmsley would be the ones to buy it. Well, to their surprise, in 1991, the highest bidder was not Helmsley or Ween, but a notorious Japanese investor named Hideki Yokoi, who was one of the richest men in Japan who bid $42 million for the Empire State Building. Turns out that Yokoi was a collector of historic buildings and of chateaus and so on. So it made a certain amount of sense that he wanted in on this historic, iconic building. He wanted to add it to his portfolio. Sure. I mean, some of us collect snow globes, others (laughs) historical buildings. Some snow globes with the Empire State Building. (laughs) Unfortunately for Yokoi, he and his family became frustrated by these leases, by the agreements that he had with Helmsley and Wayne. And so then this is where the story gets really bizarre, because into this wacky scenario waltzes Donald Trump, because this was a period in the 1990s when he was, you know, looking for new deals. And as luck would have it, one day, his second wife, Marla Maples, met Yokoi's daughter, a woman named Kiko Nakahara, at a gym. And they started talking and found out that her family owned the Empire State Building, And Maple suggested that Donald talk to her about this. Now, according to a piece by Jim Zeroli last year on NPR's All Things Considered, Trump basically suggested that they partner um, and that he would be in charge of figuring out a way to help Nakahara and her father break the leases that were held by Helmsley and Ween, and that they would run the building together under the Trump name. But you can't just break a lease legally. Well, I mean, if you're, you know, a strong-armed, cutthroat New York developer, you can, or at least you can try. And in this case, Trump would go to court claiming that Helmsley and Ween uh, were mismanaging the property and that their tower was being transformed into what he would call a high-rise dump. The New York Daily News ran a somewhat amusing article in July of 1994 with a picture of King Kong on the Empire State Building and the headline, King Don's New Empire. This is when Donald and Yokoi were starting their partnership here. 
According to the article, Donald Trump finally has bought something that can house most of his ego, the 102-story Empire State Building. Trump said in a statement, quote, This is a great deal for me. It solidifies my position as New York's native son. I get 50% of all the upside, and I intend to make my position worth a fortune. I can't really read those quotes without, in my head, visualizing them as a tweet. (laughs) Well, he would tweet his way to court um, to break the lease in 1995. And, you know, he made claims that the elevators didn't work, that there were mice and everything. And, And the court battle would drag on suits and countersuits. No pantsuits, <laughs> but lots of other suits yes. for many years. Uh, and finally, it was tossed out. He tried to appeal. No, no dice. Finally, in a surprise move in 2002, Trump negotiated a deal with the two partners to sell the property to the leaseholders for $57 million. And in the deal, Trump would pocket about $8 million. And all of this massive confusion started with how that sale was arranged in 1961. Right, 1961, which was the same year that the Port Authority would announce their plans to construct a World Trade Center. Now, the Trade Center towers uh, would open in the 1970s, and when the South Tower's 110th floor observation deck opened in 1975, tourists were obviously drawn to the newest, tallest perch in the city. Yes, by this time, the Empire State Building had lost the title of tallest building to these two structures comprising the World Trade Center. And it wasn't just tourists. Also, the broadcasters, you know, who had been using the the Empire State Building as an antenna was drawn to this even larger structure downtown. Now, after the attacks of September 11th, 2001, the Empire State Building once again became the city's tallest building, would remain that for several years. As you mentioned, today it's the fifth tallest in the United States. Today's owners, the Empire State Realty Trust Company, turned around and reinvested in updating the building because they were now the complete whole Mm -hmm. owners. They spent more than $500 million renovating the building, including more than $100 million making it more environmentally friendly, which is something that you certainly see lots of evidence of, uh, at least while you're waiting in line to get your tickets today. Mm -hmm. They they tell you all about that. Um, Another investment that they made in 2012 were in the lighting of the building because they replaced their old exterior lights with 1,200 LED lights, which allows the Empire State Building to do far crazier things than were ever possible before. I mean, you, it's so it's so vivid and detailed. You could you could essentially watch episodes of Friends. They could just broadcast them on there. <laughs> A few years ago, they had an animal conservation project in which animals' faces were projected on the side of the building. I mean, the whole city stopped, as you could imagine. I remember standing on a street corner with hundreds of people looking up as, you know, we were seeing cheetahs and baboons being projected upon the building. But fortunately, we will never see cheetos projected because (laughs) the company has promised to never use the lights for advertising purposes. And finally, we want to talk directly to New Yorkers for a minute. People who may avoid walking around the Empire State Building because it's so congested. I mean, the there's just a lot of people. There are tour companies who are uh, getting, getting people. And so because of that, you may not feel like a, a connection to the Empire State Building. But 
I think that you as a New Yorker should make an effort to appreciate the Empire State Building by digesting the podcast that you just heard, of course, but figuring out a way that you can actually go up into the Empire State Building. Perhaps that means visiting when the tourist season sort of maybe at a low. I personally recommend that you go out with your friends, have a nice meal and a drink or two, because the Empire State Building is open until 2 a.m., the last elevator is at 1.15 a.m., just make it a big to-do with your friends and go up to the top. And the city looks more beautiful than ever in 2018 because the Empire State Building being an influential piece of architecture and the flamboyant lights that are on, <laughs> on top of it are now kind of reflected into other buildings that are doing sort of the same thing. So it's a really beautiful light show out there. And indeed, Greg, I think that that was a point mentioned by cartoonist Roz Chast when we sat down with her mm -hmm. a couple of shows ago and she talked about going out with her daughter, um, having a nice dinner, splitting a bottle of wine and then just on a yeah. lark mm -hmm. heading off to the Empire State Building. I will say uh, because this is not an advertisement for the Empire State Building that I find the ticket price to go up to the 86th floor observatory rather steep. I just went on Monday, I paid my $37, and I had a wonderful time up on the 86th floor, got some great photos, loved seeing the city from that perspective, and they do explain a lot of the history up there, up on the 80th floor before you go up to the 86th floor. But, you know, I did some math on, on the inflation calculator to see what that $1 ticket, because it was $1 for many years, mm -hmm. uh, in 1931, the you know, $1 ticket today in 2018 would be about $16 or $17. Mm. That seems like a nice amount, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And the other problem with going up to the Empire State Building is when you finally get up to that observation deck, the one thing that you can't see is the Empire State Building. So I also recommend checking out the wonderful observation decks at One World Trade Center and over at Rockefeller Center. Although I think that both of those tickets cost just as much, in all fairness. Yeah, I don't think there's a, there's a cheap way to get up to the sky here in New York City. Although you could book an appointment at a dentist, perhaps, <laughs> on the true. 82nd floor. But from those two vantages, you'll be able to see, appreciate, and enjoy the beauty and the majesty that is the Empire State Building. For more on the Empire State, including amazing photos taken by Lewis Hine and many others. Including Tom. Including me on Monday. <laughs> visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. Also, we are thrilled to be involved with an exciting new kind of podcast takeover that's happening as a tie-in to the brand new TNT limited series, which I'm sure a lot of you are excited about, called The Alienist, based on the Caleb Carr book of the same name that's set in the 1890s. It's a thrilling murder mystery with lots of historical figures, a fabulous story. We cannot wait to see it on screen. It's going to start Daniel Bruhl, Luke Evans, Dakota Fanning. Well, next episode, we're going to kind of have, we're going to have a alienist tie-in episode mm. focusing on an event in New York City history that should evoke the same kind of mysterious intrigue that that story conjures. 
The show, The Alienist, debuts on TNT on January 22nd, although our episode will be available next Friday. And you may see some of your other favorite podcasts are also doing Alienist tie-ins. We'll have a little list on the blog so you can check to see if your favorite's also participating. We'd like to send a special thanks to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. It's because of the support of those who have joined us on Patreon that Greg and I have been able to spend so much more time developing and producing more episodes of the Bowery Boys. So we send you our heartfelt thanks. And when you go to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, you can see all of these special extras that are available to our patrons, including special access to a patron-only podcast feed. So thank you for joining us for the 250th episode of our show. Onward to the future. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.